Hey guys, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch with us and follow our Instagram, Twitter, and Curious Cat socials at Abwan Podcast. Our TikTok is at Abwan Chronicles. Or even email us at abwanchronicles at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the team, check out our merch at abwanchronicles.com. And you can also buy us a coffee or purchase a monthly membership at buymeacoffee.com forward slash abwan podcast. This season, we're coming with new episodes every first Wednesday of the month. Don't forget to turn on that notification bell. Welcome to the Abuan Chronicles podcast. This podcast is hosted by five black Muslim women, Hafsa, Ikran, Istahil, Sahra, and Umm Khair. This is your host Istahil, hailing from Edmonton, the city of the frozen, and home of the Oilers. Join us every month as we talk about our personal experiences, pop culture, identity, politics, and more. Hey everyone, this is Umukhair and you're listening to the Abwan Chronicles podcast. In this episode, we speak to Yasmin from Children's Aid Society, as well as an adoptive parent who goes by the alias Tegisti. While doing research for this episode, it did take us a while to kind of get a better understanding of the differences between the two. And even with that research, there were a few times in the episode where we used the terms interchangeably. So before we start off this episode, I thought I'd insert a little snippet of Yasmin's breaking down the differences between adopting and fostering. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Yasmin and uh, I work at Children's Aid and I'm happy to be here with you today to talk about foster care. Fostering is seen as short-term temporary care uh, as our primary goal is to have children and youth return to their parents or whoever we've removed them from. And in the meantime, while we're trying to work with uh, families to be able to address whatever the protection concerns are, we're looking for kin and kith. So we're looking for family members of the parents, um, extended family members, people in the community, people that are known to the children. So the role of the foster parents is to provide that temporary support, uh, care, um, supporting with reunification, with access and contact between the children and their families because again we're all in it together that the foster parents are also supporting reunification to the parents and or a kin or an alternative plan um, for the child to have uh, some support and permanency and uh, their work is with parents and families and there is connection in terms of updating them on how their children are doing getting information on what the parents would like to see for their children while they're in foster care so really having um, a connection and a bond between them and children and youth being able to see their foster caregivers are really supportive of a reunification plan and supportive of their parents And then with adoption, uh, these are situations where we've had a child who we're not able to return uh, to their family. There's been a period of time, and again, each province has their own legislation in terms of what that looks like, and where we haven't been able to return the parents or haven't been able to return the children to their parents or haven't been able to find an alternative plan. Then the child would be um, legally free for adoption, and that's where a caregiver uh, would make a plan for a child to adopt them and then be their caregiver and be their primary caregiver for their life, and that's seen as the permanent plan for that child or youth. Salam, everyone, and welcome. We have everyone here today in this episode. Myself, Umukhair. It's Istahil. Ikran. It's Hafsa. Hi, it's Sahra. 
this episode. It's part two of the fostering slash adoption series. Mm -hmm. And before getting into the episode, we thought we'd talk a little bit about how we came up with the idea of an episode about fostering and adopting. No, I think it was me and Hafsa. I think we were talking about it like, I can't remember. I think there was like a topic about foster care that came up on the TL or something. And we said we wanted to talk about it. You know what it is? It's, I think it has more to do with, it's something we've always spoken about, right? Like, I think this isn't anything new to this year. We've, I think, personally, anyways, I've always said that if I did want to have children, I would want to definitely 100% consider either adopting or fostering a child. Um, I personally, like, don't see any difference between that and having a biological child. And I've always known that if I were to have children, whether I have biological children or not, I knew that adopting a child or fostering a child would be a huge part of that. And... Because I realized that that's not really a conversation that is had intergenerationally. I mean, I, fa- I find that so many of my friends, so many of my girlfriends say the exact same thing. But a lot of them are also um, confronted with opposition from parents, family, partners. A lot of guys or other people think that there's no need to adopt or to foster or that you know i'm going to feel differently or it's not it's um it's not for me someone else can do it or whatever but obviously there's a serious problem when it comes to um you know uh, minority communities and you know making sure that children who are in services at this point do have homes that they can go to where their culture religion and all of that is recognized and appreciated and supported you know so I think that that was a huge part of why this was so important to us. I, I think this topic is brought up, but it's always brought up in like the most problematic way. Like whenever people talk about, oh, like, what are you going to do if your spouse can't like have kids? And I think that's when fostering usually comes up. It's like, oh, like that is like, like it's some kind of backup plan. I think like it never sits well with me that, you know, you would only consider it if you're somehow unable to, you know have kids like i get it like i think it's great like if you can't have kids yes foster adopt you know what i mean but like to say like oh like fantasize about you know like the if this is what i'm gonna do as a backup plan and how it's never considered something you would just do if you have the capacity to do so irrespective of whether you can have kids i think that's not spoken about enough Mm -hmm. i feel like when we look at our own backgrounds like i think it is an immigrant issue like us being second or first generation immigrants the way we see uh fostering is completely different to the way people from like back home our home country see uh fostering because i felt i feel like everyone from back home has been fostered like people have grown up with their aunts and uncles and like it's normal to house hawk yeah it's very informal it's like oh this kid has nowhere to stay and it's like okay bring him over to our house he could stay with us for months for years we'll pay for his school and it's normal like my dad grew up with his foster like technically they're his foster parents um in like Hamad where his family lived in a different completely different country and he didn't even grow up with his biological family he grew up with like a foster care but it's not seen as a weird thing you just send your kids to different families for school for you know whatever it is and they never saw it as something weird but when I talk to my parents about fostering and adoption those terms are like oh 
now it's weird. Now you have to go through the government. Now you have to, like, it's making it official. It seems weird to them. And I think there's a stigma behind fostering an adoption. It's like the kids that are in those system are kids forgotten by our communities. Like, especially Somali kids that go into foster care. It's like, that's the last you hear of them. Like, you never hear of those kids ever again. Um, which is really weird because our communities are different from that. Like, I remember growing up, in the UAE and my mom we'd have cousins coming from Somalia all the time and we never thought it was weird for them to live with us for years and years and years like we never thought that was weird that was just normal it was just staying with people that you know sometimes they weren't even people weren't even related to us and so I never thought fostering was weird because I had that translation in my mind where you know I know the the negatives and the positives of someone uh, that you have spent your whole life with staying with you but I see the good in it and so for me that has always been fostering but I understand that the language Language needs to be destigmatized and like understood. It almost seems like the formal process is a barrier. Mm-hmm. Like it's so much easier back home fostering because it's literally well, we trust this person to take care of this child, and you know that's it. You're taking care of the child. But something that I found super interesting, I've always been interested in like adopting, fostering in general. But I always thought there were so many barriers in terms of like the conditions and, you know, you have to, in my head, I don't know, I didn't do the research, so I blame it on ignorance, but you have to kind of, you know, be married, have a spouse, have some sort of support system, have a certain income, all of those things. And so when we spoke to Yasmin and she was talking about how like that's a very common misconception. Yasmin is a Children's Aid Society employee who spoke to for this episode. Here she is explaining some of the misconceptions surrounding foster care and adoption. Let's debunk these misconceptions um, because we are open to all um, all identities and all experiences. So we welcome people who um, have children. We welcome people that don't have children. We welcome people who are independent caregivers or are in a relationship or have children. Um, we welcome people that live in an apartment, a condo, a house. Um, we welcome people that have uh, a variety of experience in different ways. There are some pieces that are important to know when it comes to fostering. So we need people that have uh, a source of income and are able to meet their financial needs on their own because fostering is not a source of income. So uh, there is a financial support that's provided uh, to be able to meet the needs of the children, but that you'd have to have your own, whatever that is, that could be through any form of income that you're able to meet your own needs. And uh, there would need to be space for a child. So again, there's some differences between children and youth, depending on the province, because of the legislation and mandate in each province. Financial support is provided in terms of uh, being able to meet the needs of children and youth. Uh, So that would be a minimum requirement in terms of being able to be financially self-sufficient, but also getting the support from from fostering. Additionally, a child needs to have their own space. So uh, children, and again, I'll just speak to the legislation in Ontario. So children in foster care cannot share a a room with an adult uh, unless they're specific um, medical or caregiving needs that are required for that child specifically, Um, but they can share a room with other children. There's some uh, specific guidelines around age and around gender uh, to be able to provide support and safety in the home, but uh, they also have a right to privacy. So that's sort of where they would need a bit of their own space. So I know that sometimes it's a misconception that people think they need to have a large home or multiple rooms or 
uh, a huge source of income uh, or that they need to own their property. So all those pieces are are not the case. Again, being financially self-sufficient, that there is space for a child, like they have their own bed, they have their own uh, place to put their clothes, they have toys, like things that, they, you know, those are some of the rights for children in care. And I would say we are able to work towards when we have an applicant who's interested in fostering we're able to see if there are any uh, worries or if there are any challenges we're working with those applicants to see how we can mitigate those worries because we want to support people that want to support our children and youth so um, we are very welcoming and open and if people have questions or they think that they may not be eligible please give us a call or give your local child welfare child well-being agency or private operator call to say what I qualify to foster. These are sort of some of the things that I'm coming with, but um, we are very open and welcoming to everyone who's interested in caregiving. I think I've always thought about it in like a very super technical way. It's funny because in, I lived in the UAE too, and we always had people come over and I never really thought of that as like fostering even though we've had like cousins and family members like live with us like for years at a time which is crazy because that could have been considered the same thing but I always think about it in like very technical ways like you know if you if you like adopt or I guess I never thought about fostering because I guess fostering is a bit more temporary but like adopting like if it's a girl then eventually she's going to have to wear hijab. Or if it's a boy, eventually you're going to have to start wearing hijab. Unless, like, obviously they're breastfed at a very, very young age. So I always thought about that. And I always, I guess, like, in my head, it's like, oh my gosh, like, imagine having to wear hijab in your own home forever. And I don't know, I think that's something that I thought about. But, like, looking back, I think, I don't even think that's a big deal because I literally lived with my cousins for, like, so long. And I think I wore hijab a lot of the time anyways. So it's not super impossible. But I think that's something that I've always, like thought about when i thought about like adoption and like that yeah. technical just one thing guys before we because we've mentioned it a few times i don't think that what um culturally we do in terms of taking family in is the same as adopting or even fostering per se um fostering a it's very temporary that's one thing but even adopting because culturally when you do adopt um or like when somebody comes and stays with you I don't think, not not always, maybe sometimes, it really depends on the family, but more times than not, I've noticed that they're still not treated as someone or like another child in the family, you know what I mean? Um, they're always going to be marked as other, whereas I think with adoption, there's more of an emphasis as, um, there's more of emphasis on this child being your child, your responsibility, you are going to raise this child and like you know put them through school or whatever whereas with 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 you know family staying over and like your cousin staying with you for like 10 years it's always like oh you know agonti we're helping them out or this person we're helping them out or whatever it's like even the language used i've never been a fan of and like oh everybody chip in because it's not my sole responsibility to look after this um, child who isn't mine do you know what i mean it depends on the family it does, it does depend on the family, but also uh, even things like the languages are very commonplace. Yeah. I mean, are we going to lie? We're not good. We're not amazing people. Like, are we going to be honest? Because the way we treat the people that stay with us, sometimes it's not right. And I think that's a lot of the problems with fostering as well. And like people use the excuse of, well, I don't want to take care of kids. I don't want to take the responsibility because they know that they're not going to treat children right. But, you know. Yeah. Well, if they're taking on these children, they should be taking care of them the way that you mentioned, Hafsa. 
for if they're not, that's on them. And at the end of the day, you know, that's between them and Allah. But if you're taking on a child and you're fully responsible for this child, then you should be treating them as your own, right? But that's the problem with not that's, formalizing things, right? Well, not necessarily. Like, people formalize things and then they don't, right? And they'll still be the same. So it really yeah. just depends on the family at the end of the day. Now, I was going to say, like, um, when it comes to fostering or adopting... I feel like there is one thing that kind of gets a little brushed under the rug, but I feel like a lot of people prefer children who are a lot younger, like between like one to five years, you know? And as older they get, the less more desire they are in the system to be adopted. Jasmine tells us about the impact age has on fostering. So just in terms of um, your listeners, if you can consider um, age range as well in terms of uh, potentially fostering as well as like keeping siblings together, because those are some of the things that we're thinking about and some challenges for us when we're looking at matching children. I'm also going to do a plug for children and youth with um, varying needs. So that might be cognitive, learning, uh, ability, medical, like complex care needs. So we have, um, of course, all identities of children coming into care with uh, complex medical needs or complex needs. But we also have Muslim kids that are coming in and we don't have caregivers who um, are open uh, to, to caring for children with complex needs or maybe um a comfort level in terms of learning and and getting that support because we have training we have access to different resources to be able to provide that support but we know that it's a big ask in terms of caregiving so just another uh thing to consider and it's okay if you're if that's not something like because again we're looking for all all applicants to consider caregiving whatever that might mean in terms of um who you'd be open to caring for but just sharing sort of some of the needs of our children and youth You know, you guys, you know what's crazy? If I went to the masjid today and they're like, we need this kid to stay at someone's house for like six months or like two months. They have nowhere to go. I feel like that would be super easy for me or my family to do because it's like, okay, uh, we don't mind like, you know, letting this kid stay. It's fine. But like the whole process, like out of sight, out of Formalizing mind. Formalizing it. Yeah, yeah, it's out of sight, out of mind because I don't see these kids because it's not talked about in my circles because it's not like it's something that comes to me, you know, once in a while. Because you don't actually see them. Like, I feel like if we saw them and, you know, like if you see who's like who's who needs a home, I think you'd probably be more willing to do it without saying, you know, maybe when I'm ready, because like we, I think we all have some kind of capacity to do it if you know like as a f- like families you know what i mean but mm-hmm. i agree with this dahil yeah so that's that's what we spoke about like briefly with with yasmin where she was saying they're trying to build better relationships with mosques because they understand that if you have sort of better ties with the community whether it be the masjid or just community centers mm-hmm. in general then there's a higher chance of people taking on these children, right? But if you're just coming in as an entity and like they think to themselves, well, I don't know what these people are doing, what these agencies are doing. But if you have a familiar face from the community coming to you and telling you, well, this child needs a home and, you know, we have no place to take them, people are more willing to kind of be open to going through that lengthy process. Mm-hmm. Aren't a lot more people, like, wouldn't they go for more of a temporary position like having like a we call foster kids rather than the idea of you being the sole responsible parent in that relationship like you basically are responsible for the child when it comes to their care their education so do you think people shy away because of that or no but we did we asked Yasmin that question and she did answer that 
So I, I uh, wouldn't say that one is better than the other. I think it's really important for people to um, know the difference between the two and make the best decision for themselves and their families in terms of what they would be able to commit to because they're just two totally different ways of caregiving. One, you're recognizing that you're not caring for your own child and you're really trying to make sure that the wishes of the parents and family um, are incorporated in your caregiving and that you're meeting this child's needs based on their identity, based on um, how their parents would like to have um, their child supported while they're removed from their child. You're also keeping in close contact and supporting these parents uh, in terms of working towards reunification or a kin or kith plan. So I would say that you would have to know if this is what you'd like to commit to or if your plan is that you want to raise a child, you want to bring them into your family and raise them with your uh, traditions and have them be your child, then you would look into the adoption stream and then look at adopting a child uh, into your family that way. Uh, and certainly, again, making sure to take the time and, and including everyone that's in your family who's going to be a support to you and really critically reflecting on yourself in terms of what you would like to do so that way you're able to support a child the best way possible you can help a child through either stream so it is so beneficial and so supportive to care for a child period and if it's through fostering or adoption because we need uh, caregivers in both streams. We we are in need of foster parents and we're in need of adoptive parents. And that would be across the board, across uh, Canada, in terms of whichever agency or whichever jurisdiction that you're living in, to be able to provide that support. Just depends on what level of support you think you can provide. But there are um, there's such a need in terms of being able to support a child's identity. So the more foster parents and the more adoptive parents that we have, we'd be able to make better matches around connecting children to people who have uh, practices or identities that are similar to theirs. So um, in any way that people would consider supporting a child or youth, please reach out and do so. Up next is an introduction to Yasmin and the Children's Aid Society and the need to know for all things fostering. So before kind of delving into the details, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the field? Yes, of course. So I um, studied social work and uh, in our fourth year, we do a placement and I decided to put my name forward for a placement at Children's Aid because I thought it's really important to understand uh, what the work is with uh, Children's Aid so that I can support the families that I work with. Um, but with the mindset of not working for Children's Aid after. So kind of learning the inner workings because before I had a misconception um, around Children's Aid and what the work was and I wanted to figure out how to best support our families. So I did my placement and I mm -hmm. actually got really... Um, was very fortunate to have a field instructor who showed me that you can be uh, in the child welfare sector and work at Children's Aid from an anti-oppressive and anti-racist lens. And it was just a very new world for me because I didn't think that that existed and that wasn't why I was going into it. Um, so to be able to see how you can support families in the least intrusive way possible and meeting them where they're at was uh, was really uh, almost life-changing for me because then I started working at Children's Aid once I graduated and I've been here ever since and I really can't imagine doing anything else because there's such an opportunity to support families in in a way that meets their needs and keeps them safe and keeps them together um, and collaborating with them. So that's kind of how I got into it and, and how I've stayed here. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's so beautiful because we need to see a lot of social workers that kind of reflect uh, the, the diversity of our city, you know? So I think, I think that's, that's, yeah, extremely beautiful. So I guess maybe we can delve into um, why children kind of enter, enter foster care, um, the inner workings of why this happens on a fundamental kind of basic level. So we are governed by a provincial mandate. Uh, it's called the Child, Youth and Family Services Act. So in the Child and Youth Family Services Act, it breaks down different types of um, abuse and neglect. So uh, different children's aid societies and different child well-being agencies would work with families to assess uh, children and youth safety and well-being. So the different reasons so it could be an individual reason or it could be a combination of different uh, things that are going on. But just some examples uh, would be physical, sexual and or emotional abuse, uh, neglect of basic needs for a child or youth, uh, exposure to domestic violence in the home. Uh, significant parent-teen conflict uh, where there's risk of harm or there is harm, if there is uh, substance misuse, and I just want to be clear that it's not substance use, it's substance misuse and unsupported mental health. And again, uh, I want to emphasize unsupported, not somebody having mental health or experiencing mental health, it's the unsupported mental health. And again, in all these areas, it's around uh, the impact to children and youth. So whether there is risk of harm or there has been harm, those would be uh, examples of some of the reasons why children and youth would be uh, t- temporarily moved from their from their parents or their family while we're able to address these pieces. And then again, our primary goal is re- reunifying them with whoever we've removed them from, typically parents. Um, and I also just want to highlight that um, you know, systemic, there's systemic barriers and there's limited resources and inaccessible services in the community. And we separate that from child protection. So we recognize that those are barriers for families and we work on supporting them and addressing them so that we're able again to keep families together. And whenever there's a situation where children are removed, that we can reunify them and have them return to their their parents or family. So I can tell you for the Children's Aid Society of Toronto, we have about 110 internal foster homes at this time. Um, But I will kind of uh, explain that there's uh, a few different ways to foster. So you can foster directly for a Children's Aid Society or a Child Wellbeing Agency. You can also foster for um, a private operator. So there's, uh, it just sort of depends again, in terms of um, who you'd like to to foster for. And I encourage people to do their research in terms of uh, what supports would be available from each agency. Of course, I have my bias because I work for the Children's Aid Society of Toronto that I would encourage people to foster with us um, and can speak to the benefits and the supports that we have. But but again, for people to make that decision uh, on their own. But what we do is we... um, So for example, when we have a child who's come into care and they need a, a foster home, we will look at our internal homes first to see if we're able to have a match for this child. So based on their age, based on their identity, based on their needs, um, and then see if we have a good match for this child. If we don't have an appropriate match that would be able to best meet their needs on all these pieces um, of who they are, then we will look at um, outside of our organization because the primary goal is to have the best match possible. So Again, there'd been an opportunity to foster whether it's uh, internally for uh, a children's aid or child well-being agency or for a private operator. 
There are tons of supports, and I can just speak to uh, our agency, the Children's Aid Society of Toronto. There are tons of supports that start from the moment that someone calls. So they are connected to a home assessor who uh, is able to sort of unpack with them um, what their interests are uh, and tell them a little bit about Children's Aid and what it means to foster and our children caregiving uh, responsibilities. And then they, um, it's a sort of a mutual discussion around if it would be uh, moving them forward or not. And then following that, they get assigned to a home assessor and that home assessor spends the time walking them through the process and really diving into the realities. Um, we also have a very unique rule. Once uh, uh, an applicant is approved to be uh, a foster parent, we have uh, a foster parent support worker. So I believe we might be the only one in the province that offers this support. So this is a part-time staff. And also they have a sort of a dual role. They're a part-time staff and they're also a foster parent. So currently we have three uh, foster parent support workers and they've all been foster parents for many many years cared for a variety of different children and youth with different needs uh, different identities and they're able to connect with a new foster parent around those realities of what it means to be a foster parent and it's so different learning it from someone who has lived it because they can speak to um all those things that we may never ever cover in a in a training or during the home study process. And they're also available um, on call. So they're actually t- on call 24-7 and accessible to our foster parents as that support. So they'll get calls sometimes around um, bedtime or around a child who um, is missing their parent or, you know, maybe struggling with a meal time, like all of those things. And again, they get that support in the moment that they need it from people who understand. Removing a child from their family is the most intrusive thing. And it's um, the hardest thing to do for a child and youth and their family. So we really work hard at keeping children safe with their families. And I can tell you that our uh, statistics around um, removing children from their families has continued to reduce over the years. So we are bringing less children and youth into care um, because we're working collaboratively with families. We're meeting them where they're at. We're seeing where their strengths are and where the existing safety. We're using their networks and who their supports are uh, to be able to safety plan and build their network of supports and make it more foundational in terms of whatever the parents or or caregivers need. We also have um, a kinship department that is specifically committed to um, looking at kin and kith, uh, people that are from that family or from that community or known to the child to provide care or support to children, again, as an alternative to bringing them into foster care, because we know how hard it is to be removed from your family and go into a stranger's home. So with these pieces, it's been um, really great to be able to see children remain with their families or connected to their extended family and community, uh, because I would say um, removing them again is is one of the most uh, challenging things. And again, our priority is reunification. So once a child comes into care, our primary goal is to have them return to their parents. And when we're not able to do that immediately, it is around exploring um, kin or kith to, to make sure that they're best connected to their to their community and again meeting their identity needs meeting their community needs having their day-to-day routines kept is a lot easier with people that uh, know you than it is with people that are still getting to know you and getting to know your families 
on that note, I was wondering um, if someone knows of someone within their community or someone that's a family member that needs fostering, would they be able to apply directly for that child or uh, would the child just go into the system? No, it's a great question. So absolutely, that's what our kinship uh, team works on. So they would be called and then they would go out and meet with that uh, relative or that family who's coming forward for this child and then they would uh, assess them and provide that support. So that could be done the same day that there's a worry or uh, um a need for an alternative caregiver. Mm-hmm. So like for our communities, the Muslim community, we're very connected to the mosque, for example, and we hear a lot of things at you know our masjids in those areas. Um, if we heard like a, a child that's we're not related to because then um, that we're removed from it, at that point you're a stranger, but you wanted to take in this child because you know their um, circumstances, uh, would it be easy to uh, reach out to you guys and then make it more official or... Because I know a lot of the Muslim community, they like to just do things uh, traditionally, which is basically just taking the kid and then you, you um, without bringing in any sort of authority figure or anything. So the whole community knows that you're taking care of a child, but there's no official title mm-hmm. to it. So I was wondering if you, they could benefit from a uh, foster care system and actually, you know, bring in a child while getting all the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. So in those situations, if the, if the, per, if the family... Um, doesn't know somebody from the mosque that is wanting to bring up a plan, our role would be to connect them because we need to also honor um, the parents' wishes. And sometimes um, parents welcome that support and sometimes they don't and it could be for a variety of different reasons. So we would be um, gathering all of that information and trying to bring people together to see uh, what the least intrusive uh, measure of action and what would be in the best interest of the child and youth. So I wouldn't be able to tell you that there's like an exact answer in terms of yes or no, but all options would be explored in terms of being able to um, assess whoever is coming forward. Because again, if it's somebody from the community, it would be um, better for this child and youth, even if they don't necessarily know them, but they're able to meet their needs or they might be somehow connected, even if it's through the masjid. Like that is still a connection to um, to the community and to the family. And I would say um, there's so many resources and supports that we're able to provide once we become involved. So it is helpful for us to be able to assess the family that's come forward so we can actually make sure that it is a safe family and that they are able to meet the children and youth's needs, um, that they are making sure that their children, like the children are seeing their parents and having that happen on a regular basis, that whatever the protection concerns or worries are being supported and addressed with the parents so that the child can return to them as soon as possible. So those are the, some of the things that we would be working with, um, with both sets, like with the parents as well as the caregivers who are coming forward to be able to, again, have the primary focus be reunification and family connection for any part of uh, the separation. I Since we're talking about Muslim families, I will say we do have a gap. Uh, we do not have many Muslim families fostering um, for us. And I would say that's, you know, the primary reason that I'm so excited to do um, this discussion with you today, because we are doing a call out to Muslim, uh, to the Muslim community to please consider fostering because we do have Muslim children and youth uh, coming into care and we are having challenges being able to match them with Muslim families. Um, and again, a diversity of Muslim families based on different intersections of their identity characteristics so that we can make the best match. Um, also in terms of age ranges. So, So uh, the Muslim families that we have currently 
uh, primarily foster younger children. So we don't have Muslim families that are fostering youth. Or if we have, let's say, a sibling group uh, that come into care, we might have like a four-year-old and a 15-year-old. We'd really want to keep these two siblings together and have them in a home that meets their identity needs. Uh, so I think uh, when it comes to fostering, a lot of people are always thinking about, oh, I want to do this, but they never go through with it because the process just seems so intimidating. So are you telling us like it's as easy as calling um like your organization or calling another fostering organization and saying, uh, I would like to adopt and uh, not adopt, but I would like to foster a child. What are the next steps uh, going forward? So that part is easy. I will definitely say that to be able to call and say, I'm interested in fostering <laughs> and having someone spend the time with you and explain the process. That part is easy breezy. Um, there is a process, the actual assessment process um, is a bit more intrusive. Um, and in Ontario, it's mandated that um, anytime someone wants to foster with a children's aid, it's the same assessment across the board. So it's consistent in terms of what the process will be and what the training that's required will be before being approved to be a foster parent. And it will be transparent that it is uh, an intrusive process. So I just had a question on the attachment part. Um, So I was just wondering, what is the average length that foster parents care for children? Like if someone is not able to commit a longer period of time, would they have the option to take care of children that just need temporary, um, a temporary place to stay? Yeah, so great question. And I'm not going to be able to give you a direct answer because <laughs> there isn't an answer. And I'll tell you why. Um, because again, our primary goal is reunification. That might be, when I talked about the different types of abuse, that might be able to be addressed in a day, a week, a month, six months, sometimes a year. It really depends on that situation individually with that parent or caregiver. And then when we're not able to return, we're concurrently looking at kin or kid, like alternative caregivers from that child's family, network, and community. And we might be able to find them on day one, in a week, in a month, in a year. So it really just depends in that situation um, with that specific child, youth, and their family around when we can get them out of foster care. So Maybe we can kind of uh, go into the curious cat questions. We got a few questions from our listeners um, about fostering. Okay, so the first question is, is there a cap on the number of kids you can adopt or foster? Let's say mm-hmm. foster. So um, so anytime somebody's applying to foster, they go through an assessment process and um, similar with adoption. So it's the same assessment. So I'll just uh, speak to adoption of, uh, in terms of a cap. They would be assessed each time. And during that assessment will be the conversation with the assessor and the applicant in terms of what their caregiving needs are, what their ability is to care for a child. For fostering, it would be the same. So we're looking at how many we would approve an applicant to foster. But uh, in Ontario, the maximum that uh, a foster parent could foster at one time is up to four children. And we'd like to keep it at a smaller um, number. I mean, if it's a sibling group of four, that might be a situation where we have four children placed in one foster home to keep siblings together. But we also want to make sure that we're not um, uh, overwhelming a caregiver. And we want to make sure that there's an opportunity to provide the best level of support and care. So that's where we might look at one or two children at a time. But it really is so specific around the abilities of the caregiver their their um, experience with us in terms of fostering and what that looks like but an absolute max would be up to four at any time i just have like a another question that's uh, related to this one but you mentioned how you try to keep siblings together um do you ever get 
situations where you have a family that's like five members or six members and then do you make an exception for that? That's a a, a good question. So uh, we can try to request approval from the ministry. So that's not something that any individual agency would be able to provide. You'd have to go to the ministry to get that approval around um, extending the number from four and we'd have to be able to demonstrate that the needs of the children would not be compromised, that there's private space, that they would have a bedroom, like all of those pieces before getting that, um, that permission. But at all costs, we try to keep siblings together. Um, and again, this is where we're looking for more caregivers that might be open to sibling groups and have the space and ability to care and the supports and resources to care for a sibling group. But unfortunately, there are situations where we may not be able to support that. In an ideal world, you would, you would think that people would be really open to uh, opening their house for kids in need. Um, but I feel like the way the system is set up, everyone's just so scared to approach it. Mm-hmm. So it's good that we're talking about it now. Yes, thank you. Okay, so um, I guess this is the final question that we have. And someone was wondering if you would be able to uh, adopt a child after you foster them. And of course, that's if it applies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we um, we have separate streams, uh, one for fostering and one for adoption. Because again, we talk about like where the caregiver is at and what they're willing to commit to and what they're seeing for their family and for their support. So there are two different as- uh, lenses in the assessment because again, adoption is around um, wanting to parent that child and, and care for them and be their legal guardian and that is their permanency plan whereas fostering is temporary um, is incorporating the wishes of um, of the family is working with the, the child welfare agency in terms of what the expectations are in caring for children and youth so um, the mindset is a bit different so and our primary goal is to have children when they're in foster care to return to their families or return to their communities so we don't have as many um, children moving on to adoption there might be some specific situations where a child is in foster care and is not able to return to their family or any kin or kith and then is um, available for adoption. A foster parent can certainly be considered. They can put their name forward in wanting to care for the child. And then there's sort of a process around adoption to see who the best match is for the child. So if we have placed a child in a foster home with someone who's not an identity match because we didn't have anybody, um, and then this child is now legally free for adoption and we're looking for a match and we have have an adoptive family who is an identity match, that would be a point of consideration around what would be in this child's best interest for a permanent plan when it comes to adoption. So yeah, so the short answer is they can certainly present their plan, but it's so child specific around what the needs and and, um, options are available for this child or youth for what a permanency plan could be. Before we end, totally, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Yasmin, for joining us. That's incredible. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. having us and so grateful for this opportunity to share um, our needs and hopefully uh, welcome people to be giving us a call or their local child welfare, child well-being agency, a call to consider how they can support uh, our Muslim children and youth and all of our children and youth. Yeah, I just want to say thank you as well. I've had some of these questions for literally the longest time. So it's great that we have an avenue to answer these questions as well. Absolutely. And I think it's important, like if anybody has any questions at any time, you can, like, and I appreciate you're going to share our um, handles and our, our ways to contact because you can email, you can call, you can visit, like there's so many different ways to connect with us to be able to answer any questions that you have or walk through it. We've had people 
call and get information and then years later call us back and say, okay, now I'm ready because, you know, they've been able to uh, work through or get the support that they need or address whatever it was. So it doesn't have to be right in that moment. It could just be learning a bit more and having that information. So you guys can find the the Children's Aid Society of Toronto on Twitter, Instagram, and also their website. So Twitter is Toronto Casts. Um, Instagram, Toronto underscore CAS, and then torontocas.ca is their website. Thank you again, Yasmin, and it was was a pleasure uh, talking to you today. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for listening. In our final interview, Amalkhir talks to the amazing Tegisti about the adoption process. This is Tegisti. I'm in the social sciences. I'm a researcher, educator, and you know what else to say? I'm like you know based in the GTA, and yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So we're so excited to have you too, because we did so in this episode. We actually also recorded with uh, members from CAS, which is the Children's Aid Society, and they kind of gave us a very kind of technical outlook on fostering specifically, and we kind of touched on adoption, but not really. It's nice to know how to do things and know that the process is not as complex as we make it out to be. But we also really want to talk to someone, someone who's just started off, can tell us about their experience and what they've been through. And so, Tegesti, <laughs> when we found out that you had, um, we're like, okay, we need to have we need to have her on the podcast. We need to talk to her about her experience. So we're just like super excited to have you um, on the podcast today. So I was thinking, could you start off with telling us a little bit about um, like when you were approved for adoption and what that process was like for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's us. We're just, you know, we're, we're in the midst of it right now. So this is very fresh for us. So we got a little boy, um, yeah, so thrown into, you know, toddler world all of a sudden. Um, so for us, it's just been a few months, really. It's a few months where placement actually happened, meaning like, you know, the child is staying with us full time. But like, just back it up a bit from that. So, I mean, I feel this, you know, I'm sure other folks that have adopted would could kind of relate to this. There's like... A good chunk of time that's spent just in the contemplation phase, I feel like, in adoption often. Um, mm-hmm. Just figuring out this is your path, does this make sense to you, all that piece of it, right? Um, and I feel like that is important time to be spent before people jump into this world. Um, mm-hmm. So that's time to spend. Honestly, that was a bigger chunk of time. And then after we actually, you know, me and my partner kind of agreed that this is our path, this is what we want to do. And then, like, after we started doing the actual, you know, paperwork, you know, uh, did the course, the six-week, you know, kind of course, and then afterwards moving to, you know, what they call the home study, right? I'm sure this was covered maybe with your earlier kind of conversation, but the home study yeah. where, you know, they spent, you know, four to six months, you know, uh, with, you know, one-on-one kind of conversation interview with a social worker usually, um, to get your file, your file really ready to be able to basically classify you what they call adopt ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a question for you. So you said you have to start off with like contemplation and reflection and like just being sure and certain that you want to do this before like embarking on this journey because it's like a huge one. So like, was there a moment? Like, do you feel like it was a moment? Do you feel like it was over a few days? Like, how did you know that you were sure you wanted to go down this path? 
Oh, so it's definitely not a few days. Oh, not as much folks to always spend a few days. Yeah. Unless you have the best, like, most life-changing few days. I mean, that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but honestly, for us, no, it wasn't a few days. It was like months and months. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just the reflection piece in itself maybe close, took close to a year. Uh, yeah, serious. Uh, yeah, no, as I actually said, it'll go like close to a year. I think maybe half the year after really reflecting, we ended up attending just a workshop. Um, just a very simple workshop to get like a little bit more information on, you know, um, what to expect, things like that. And then we spent a good amount of time again in reflection and spending some time, um, really thinking about it, you know, and making sure, you know, you're, you're, your life is like you're never fully you know people say you you want to be ready for a child you're never fully ready for a child yeah. right that's not really a thing but you want yeah. but in your mind you feel like you could be you know you know you want the timing to make sense for you too and yeah and we sat with it and honestly like i think the decision decision for us like yeah we're gonna embark on this happened like it was it happened to be ramadan when mm, i think sure. like yeah, yeah. For, i mean yeah. you know ramadan does stuff like that yeah. But I happened to be a Ramadan when like a clarity, clarity came fully. And yeah, and then we just at that point were like, that's it, buckle down and jumped into it kind of thing. <laughs> Did your family, like your community, your like close circle, think about it? Like, were they um, curious? Did they have questions? Were there like common misconceptions that they're just like asking you about? And you're like, no, like, what are you talking about? This is not what you think it is. Kind of yeah, thing. yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, because, you know, like, you, in terms of formal adoption, you don't really see it in our communities, like, significantly, you right? You don't. So it's not like you really have, you know, you know, your aunties and your cousins to really go talk to about it. Uh, so honestly, in the beginning, it did feel like it was an isolating process. Like, you know, we're just learning from books and online and workshops, things like that. Um, and we did keep the early reflection piece to ourselves. Like, we wanted to make sure we knew what we're jumping into, at least conceptually, and, you know, emotions were there before we actually shared it. Um, mm. And then when we felt like, you know, we were, we were, we felt like strong about our decision, you know, we opened up to kind of family and told them what we're doing. And I mean, Alhamdulillah, we were, like our families, I mean, they don't know much about adoption, but they were really supportive, which is makes a huge difference. Uh, mm. Right. Uh, so they were supportive and they were engaging. But yeah, it's not like it's. It's not that it's a difficult conversation to have, but it's just like sometimes it may feel a little left field for families if this is not a norm, right? Yeah, yeah. They always like kind of push you towards the conventional way of having children. And they say, well, it's, you know, you that's your blood. You know, this is someone that you're you're giving birth to and they're, you know, they're going to continue your lineage. But it's just it's not normal within our Exactly, community. exactly. Yeah. So there's that there's that piece. Right. And mm-hmm. um, and I mean, Alhamdulillah, we didn't hear like our families were really kind of our immediate immediate families were really kind of understanding but you hear things like that from like extended folks right um Mm -hmm. that are in our broader kind of circles and honestly our approach has really been kind of like you know when we you know got our families to kind of and uh, like for us like a big piece of it is i don't know if you've seen uh uh, the umar Suleiman like online thing about adoption in the religion I don't or something. Think I have the yeah. article or was it an article? It's a video. video. It's a YouTube kind of thing. Yeah. 
No, I don't think I have. Yeah. It's Tell re- me more. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, I mean, that became our approach, basically. We became like, yeah. what we, we tell our, our, we told our families and they were like, watch this YouTube. <laughs> I mean, it was interesting in terms of just like, you know, at least from the like religious perspective, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're like, watch this episode, you know, it's like, you know, part of, it is part of our tradition, but it's been reframed and rethought in this context, right? We don't call it mm-hmm. ad- adoption, right? In our tradition, we, you know, it's, it's more like we understand as guardianship, right? Um, mm-hmm. you can't take, you know, you don't, can't take no one outside of the lineage and we don't like, you know, we don't condone that kind of thing. People are always part of their lineage, but to, you know, offer kind of a type of guardianship, it's like, you know, we came to understand it as like, and it's a blessed thing and we want to go on that path. Yeah. Um, so when we kind of approached it in a way that made sense to our families in a, in a more, culturally attuned way in a way that kind of spoke to our tradition it didn't feel as alien as they initially thought it was yeah like they felt like it was more real because i feel like it's such a foreign concept sometimes but then when someone you know just starts to think about it or even takes the practical steps to start to adopt everyone around you just becomes kind of more attuned to it and they're just it becomes more normal for them i guess it becomes normal for them and then all of a sudden we start hearing all these stories from our families that like oh yes you know our you know our uncle essentially adopted this child you know but you know back home it's not like we like it's guardianship it's like you know it's It's not really yeah termed as adopting and also like they don't really have um the formal process exactly processes that you go through here here it's like so much it's a little scarier. I feel like a lot of people are a little too scared to like move forward with adopting because they think it's like a whole process. And it is, but it's not as as complex as they kind of uh, put it out to be. Back home, it's just, oh, this person, their parents passed away. You know, they're from the same clan or the same tribe. So we're going to take them on and take care of them and raise them. And that's like a form of adoption. It is. It really is. And that's yeah, fostering. Exactly. And yeah. that's a form of a like that. It is a fostering system of adoption, right? You take mm-hmm. guardianship and you have a parenting role to this child uh, and then you have a certain responsibility of taking care of somebody that's been orphaned in one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to that, so it's like when you then when you really sit on sit with it, you know, with our family, they they kind of saw it wasn't really a foreign thing to our tradition, both culturally and religiously. It's just reframed and presented in a different way in this context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the process. Jumping to the process, like so, there's the, we did the coursework, which was which was okay, that's pretty straightforward, and then a, a bigger chunk of it, which was a little bit more work, is what they call the home study, and yeah, that's always mentioning before, which is a four to six month period where you're essentially working with a social worker to get you adopt ready, which means like they're doing kind of like you know, it's almost like it's not really therapy, but it's like. Mm-hmm. They're really trying to get a good sense of your background, a sense of like uh, your perspectives, your reasoning for going forward. Is this like a screening process? So, so at this point, you don't know if you're going to be allowed to adopt a child. Yeah. It's like they're kind of vetting you and seeing if you're capable of doing so. Essentially, essentially, okay. like, you know, like they're, I feel like they don't like there has to be like huge, uh, maybe like like you know uh, um huge gaps for them to really say like uh no we're not gonna move forward with it but it's like they want you to work through certain things right and for them also it is a type of screening right um mm-hmm. so it does that dual process you get to work with things maybe you didn't think of um some specific challenges that comes with adoption you didn't think of so you work through that with them 
They give you opportunities to walk through it just in case you did it. And then they also are collecting information, right? Around your, you know, your history, the, like your, your values and your, you know, your perspective. So it's a type of screening for them too. And then you obviously do the basic kind of checks, right? The police checks, all those checks kind of thing. Do you feel like that process of them sort of asking you questions and figuring out why you got into this, it's kind of like a good way to see if you're actually ready for it? Do they ask you questions that kind of question you, like you start kind of reflecting and thinking to yourself, okay, am I actually ready for this? Yes, yes, it really does that. So, I mean, sometimes people feel intimidated by that piece of it. I uh, don't, yeah. it's like this person's coming in and I mean, they come to your home, you know, they have to, you know, look at your home, all that stuff. Yeah. So sometimes people are intimidated by it kind of thing or a sense of like, I don't feels like, you know, you, like you're being investigated, things along those lines. But honestly, um, when we, we actually, when we got into it, um, mm-hmm. it felt much more, it really depends on the worker you get, but it felt much more like we're talking, we're saying things out loud, maybe that we didn't say this out loud. Uh, we're like making more specific plans. Uh, we're, th- we're forced to think about things ahead of times, right? Usually when you're thrown into parenting, uh, you don't really like maybe think about the nitty gritty of like, you know, your parenting approach, all that stuff, your approach to discipline, like ahead of times, maybe you implicitly think of it, but you're forced to flush everything out basically at a kind of an earlier mm. stage. It was actually ended up being really interesting and useful. Um, yeah so we went through that and then after you finished that process that's when and then they review your application as the whole thing and then after you're reviewed you're considered adopt ready and that's when you're basically eligible to be considered uh for you know for matching uh, matching mm-hmm. meaning you know if a child fits um what what has come up with your home study like what what is the best suited for you kind of thing yeah what does that mean like if a child fits yeah so this is what for them fit matters kind of thing right now and uh, things have changed now which is like in my opinion it's a good thing where like um cultural religious racial match matters much more um to to especially the public system but generally it matters much more like there's a final like there's a final realization that like uh, the more there is a match, meaning cultural, religious, other forms of match with the child, the smoother the transition in the family, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we spoke about that briefly with um, Yasmin from Cass, and she was talking about the importance of identity-based matching. That's what she called identity-based matching, which was basically like you mentioned, whether like if they're religious, like are they they're from a family that's practicing or not practicing? Are they, you know, what's their cultural background? What language was spoken in their house? They play a significant role in adoption. Um, it depends the ch- the age of the child too, right? It has a lot to do with it. But generally, even if you're adopting a child at a really young age, um, like the closer there is in terms of cultural religious match, um, the easier it is to manage some of the identity kind of issues that may come up later on. So there's already like there's already you know a, a there's already a, a natural mitigation or negotiation that happens with adoption, right? You're you're already gonna ask you ask the questions, right? You know you grew up with an adoptive family. What does that mean for you and all that stuff, right? In terms of heritage side, but on top of that, ideally you don't want to load that up with there's also a cultural gap in our religion you know all those things on top of that too um so they are trying to be more conscientious i mean they 
you always can get a match, right? Because there, I'm sure you guys heard it from your last speaker, but the reality is there isn't that many racialized, racialized families that are really in the system and ready to adopt. Yeah. So what is that? What is that process like in terms of not the process of like matching, but the waiting, I guess, because after they've kind of made you or they've declared that you're fit to take on a child, there's like a gap, like there's a period of time where you're just not certain of what's going on. You're just waiting. What is that like? Yeah. So a big piece to just keep in mind what adoption is, there's a lot of waiting generally. <laughs> waiting just yeah. a lot of paperwork and a lot of waiting. That's just part of the thing. So, you know, you're forced to, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, boost up your server for sure, like your patients. Um, mm-hmm. But so the waiting piece is basically you put your application in and essentially that's it. You just like wait. And um, honestly, I think the difficult part for people is just like, you know, not knowing like when your life is going going to completely change right is it going to be in a couple months is it going to be some people's waiting time is, is pretty long uh, especially in the public system it could be a year or more it could be up to two years um where you're just kind of potentially waiting to see if a match comes up um so that's what it is you know people kind of you know try to call in to see but essentially you just you just wait at that point and at that time people may you know put their file in the public system they mo- they may put their file in in the private adoption kind of space mm-hmm. um and some folks may decide to do international right obviously private international they they cost much more right mm-hmm. um the public doesn't like you know cost adoptees to be part of that system but that's basically what it is. You just you essentially just wait. It just it depends whenever uh, a call comes, yeah. and then when the call comes, you just have to be ready to go. What is that like? So what was that like for you? So you were waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then you get that call. You know, we have a child that potentially you can take on. Tell us about that. Yeah. So essentially, for us though, like we were ready for the wait, the long haul wait kind of thing. That's what we kept reading. <laughs> That's what we kept reading online. Uh, and we're like, okay, you know, we're ready for it. Um, but for us, uh, it's just the way things happen is it was just a couple months. Mm. Um, so for us, it was like we submitted our application and a, like maybe two months, not even two months later, we got a call. Um, that's pretty quick yeah yeah so that's quick yeah. and in our case like things did like line up in terms of timing alhamdulillah but a big piece also of it is again they told us that there really isn't a number of black Muslim families in the system mm. um, mm-hmm. and there, there's a need right mm-hmm. so when we came up it wasn't like there's you know there were other black Muslim families like in the list for them to you know <laughs> compare with mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i think we were we were the only like real serious candidates um there may have been other friends but we were the only like serious candidates so it wasn't a sense of like you know they have they had multiple families to you know look through their files and mm-hmm. kind of decide because they looked as essentially what uh, it seemed like ideally what they would want is they would want you know multiple families and then a child comes up and then they see what fits best but in terms of like it seemed like they didn't really have a lot of families in the system or even like another family in the system they could really look at in mm-hmm. a in a serious way yeah. and our our thing just fit so they called us and the call is really like it really feels like you know out of the blue your life is just completely you know going somewhere else now 
<laughs> so it was both, yeah, we, we, they called us up and we were like, they're like, you know, we have, we think we have a potential match. Are you ready to, they essentially usually send your file to your worker and yeah. then your worker is supposed to like communicate that to you. So that happened. Mm-hmm. And then our worker told us about the case. She, she felt like it was a, it was a good match. She explained the case to us. We were like, mm-hmm. we felt like it fit just generally. It was a good fit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was, it wasn't a complicated case. It was a pretty simple case. Um, the child was already in foster, foster care, you know, it was a consistent family. So all that fit. Um, and then that's it. After that, it's they after they internally approve you, um, mm-hmm. uh, they have their own choices of approving you. And then after that, you're just, it's just like you're waiting to start your official kind of transition process. And okay. like, since for us, it's like, we did feel like we were just like, it does feel like a thrownness in the system because we, we basically got the call and then we were like, okay, what happens after the call? So like, you get the call and like a couple weeks and then you're ready to go. Like, should we, you know, get a crib and everything right now? Or, yeah. You know, kind of thing. It's like, you don't have like the whole, you know, nine months to plan kind of, you know, yeah. process. Yeah. Or do we just wait and wait for, you know, not, so it was a lot of like not knowing how long it's going to take, yeah. how much of our, you know, how much of our lives needs to switch right now. Um, so it was a lot of that. So, uh, we waited, it took a, it took a good, like we, maybe it took a good six weeks for it to actually be like official after the call. Mm-hmm. So like six weeks until you had your baby an- at your house or six weeks until official. Yeah. Until they're like, okay, your official match and now mm-hmm. your, your transitionary period is going to begin. So what was that like for you, like the transition period? So for the child, obviously, this is all about the child. We have to make sure that they're comfortable, um, adjust the time period according to how they feel. Like from a perspective of, of an adoptive parent, what was that like? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, no, a big piece. For us, it was also like a learning process. We did think like, you know, what you initially said, you know, you get matched and then that's it, you're, the child's in your mm-hmm. home kind of thing and you, do, you go from there. Um, but... One piece, like, for us is, like, more, like, like, really, like, getting into the transition and, like, accepting that it has to go on the, in the child's pace kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. accepting, like, what that means and that is best for everyone. So, also, like, trying to, you know, develop somewhat of a relationship, all right? Some form with the foster family. So it mm-hmm. is smoother. So it's not simply that, you know, the child comes into your home and then, you know, what are, like their history, whoever cared for them before that is just erased. But you're trying to develop like what they call like openness in adoption mm-hmm. where you're like open to like you to the some of the history of the child. If it's been a healthy part for them. Um, mm-hmm. So it's been a, he was with a, a great foster family. Um, so it was easy mm-hmm. to do that part. But just there is a sense of like there is a there is anxiety around like, you know, now you're uh, engaging with this other family that's cared for him for a while. So how's that going to be? Is that going to be awkward? How's that going to work mm-hmm. kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and especially it depends on the situation. Some foster families, they may have, you know, maybe they thought the child would stay longer. Maybe they've stayed a long time. An attachment has been built there on the foster family side too. So the transition mm-hmm. is hard for them too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, managing that piece of it too and figuring that out. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, it was, it was just, it just feels uns- like unsettling, right? There's an unsettling piece that you just have to accept kind of thing in that piece. Mm-hmm. Like things don't feel certain. Um, yeah. and like, honestly though, at the end of the day, that is best for the child, but from the adopter family side of things, it feel, especially if it's your first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, feel things feel un un uncertain and you exactly yeah. and you just mm-hmm. and then you just have to be comfortable being uncomfortable in these kind of situations. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the key. That is the being key. Comfortable being yeah uncomfortable. Yes, exactly. So you're done with the transition period, um, and now your child is in your home. What was that like how did you guys prepare during the transition period did you guys have like nights where you know the child would sleep over or was it just kind of purely day visits so like in terms of like having a crib in the house or having like i don't know if you need diapers or things like that how did you prepare from that perspective yeah so we definitely went on the over prepared side of things <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah we definitely went to the over prepared kind of side of things it's like that's another big part of the whole like you're uncertain you know because they mm-hmm. initially like we in hindsight it was like five weeks but initially they were like it may take three weeks to transition it may take up to five weeks it may take longer so we're like okay we need to, to be, be ready exactly so essentially really early uh we like we put out a registry and then we told our families oh, yeah we mm-hmm. told our families okay guys like let's go <laughs> right we need <laughs> We need these things ASAP. So, I mean, and then our families were, were good with it. And then they, like... So, within, like, essentially within, like, a week or so, we had mm-hmm. the things we need ready to go. Um, and then, you know, we slowly kind of built everything there. By the time our, um, our child came to, like, you know, sleep over, like, everything, like, we were we were a little bit over the top. Everything was ready. Uh, we, we had, the, you know, we had a room decorated. We had the craze. We had... That could, that could last forever <laughs> so we were i love that so did you guys have to take um parental leave or like how did that work like did you tell your workplace okay so like i'm thinking in a week's time or two weeks time we're gonna need to take like a month or two off yeah, yeah so that's another piece of it for like for me i teach and then things happen semester by semester right um mm-hmm. and it's hard to leave mid-semester when you're teaching um so when we when we heard of the news it was right before the semester began um just that we you know we got matched so at that point it just became a little kind of uncertain because it could happen any day now it probably would happen mid-semester what's gonna happen you know i can't take time because ideally they do want you to take time off when the child is placed with you um they want you to take time off like you would um if you know you gave birth um Mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to maybe you won't take as long of a time but they want you to take what they call like uh they call it like a cocooning phase basically Mm -hmm. a phase where you're like really trying to focus on attachment building uh Mm. depending on the age of the child but around the age of of uh our son we had to like be conscientious of like you know a time where we're like you know spending a lot of time together and we're working on just you know attachment kind of stuff Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So in, in on my end, since it's like semester, semester, I just ended up taking time off before placement happened. 
mm. kind of thing. So you just took the whole semester. I just off took the whole semester just off to figure things out. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So on my end, that's what worked, and I just happened mm-hmm. to have you know a work situation where I was able to get parental leave before placement. Okay, that's um, great. Yeah, so I, I was able to get that and do that. But mm-hmm. on my partner's side, um, he wasn't, he couldn't get like his, where he's working, he couldn't get it before placement happened. So he, they mm-hmm. just had to play it by ear. And when it looked like placement was, was happening, was close. And then he took his mm-hmm. time off, his parental leave off. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's what we did. Like he took about, you know, I had this, uh, you know, I had the semester off and he took about two months off. Um, yeah. and then, yeah, so at least we had that when placement happened. So at least both of us were like for that two month mm-hmm. period, uh, there. Exactly, the exactly. So you're done with the transition period. Now the child is with you. What was that like? Like that first kind of week or so or month where it was just you and that child? No, for sure. I mean, yeah. So be like, just, yeah, like you said, like when you give birth to a child, like you, if it's your first child thrown into parenting, it's like a whole mm-hmm. thing, right? A whole world thing. But the interesting thing is like in many ways, an adoption really depends on the, the age of the child, right? So if you're getting yeah. a newborn, in many ways, your experience is very similar to, you know, you know, like the sleepless nights, the same kind of challenges, you know, you would get when with mm-hmm. a newborn, right? Um, when you get a child a little bit older, especially like maybe if they are around toddler age, it's mm-hmm. like you're when you're giving birth to a child and you're like you're you know you're you you're learning the child the whole time until they get to toddler phase right so when they get to the terrible mm-hmm. twos you've had two years mm-hmm. of the child to kind of get a sense <laughs> to get their personality and what they like and dislike ticks them off you know what all that little things they have little personalities right <laughs> but for like when you're like you know thrown into you know kind of you know parenting like at a certain age right um like you know there's different ages come with their own challenges but like when you're in toddlerhood they already kind of developed a little personality that you're trying to like you're catching up to get to know Mm. um kind of thing mm. so that's the piece of it like you know you underestimate how quickly the little babies develop little personalities right <laughs> uh, so it's like you're you're getting to know a little human and you know yeah. and like you know he's getting to know you um mm-hmm. and then it's just like it's just it just feels like you like you're learning each other right mm. and then you're learning things like that know him you're like okay maybe let's not let's not do it that way let's this will work better <laughs> you know yeah uh, kind of thing and just like especially with a toddler phase i think the difficult piece is like there is you know toddlers you know they they're trying to assert their independence right that's just a natural Mm. thing toddlers do they're learning their environment they're trying to assert their independence but it gets complicated when you're when they're doing that but at the same time they also um are attaching to you kind of things you're a new caregiver so there's a, Mm -hmm. a bit of like there's a bit of like sometimes a little bit of regression the attachment piece because doing things like little infants may do in terms of like you mm-hmm. know trying to attach to you uh but at the same time they want to assert independence too so from the adoptive parents that it is a little bit confusing to navigate is that like a normal toddler mm-hmm. stuff or is he you know is he having problems with the transition you know mm-hmm. yeah there's so many elements i can only imagine because they're still an infant they're a child there's so many things happening around them and at the same time, they're trying to deal with, you know, grow, you know, their age, you know, the, the common things that are done at their age as a toddler, terrible twos, like you said. So 
And then you have to decipher all of that, which is, I can't imagine how complicated that is. And that's the so, piece of it. So the whole thing is like, is this yeah. a normal toddler thing? Or is it like, yeah. is he feeling the change in her environment? Is, you know, mm-hmm. is there a response to that kind of thing? So I think that was mm-hmm. the hard part. Just try to navigate mm-hmm. that piece of it. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was so beautiful. Mashallah. Um, it was so nice hearing your perspective. Um, but I do want to end this segment of the episode in such a po- on a positive note. So tell us, and I might be putting you on the spot here, um, but tell us, I want to say, like something kind of beautiful that you've experienced that you're surprised about throughout this whole process from beginning to end, even like during the decision process. What was something that kind of took you by surprise? Um, let's see. I mean, I feel like really there's like, surprise becomes mm-hmm. the norm <laughs> everything becomes a surprise mm-hmm. it's like except, mm-hmm. except that you don't know and you just throw it into it but i would say um just how i don't know how quickly just like attachment and love happens kind of thing mm. um it's like you know we we hear a, like a lot and you know rightly so you know there's a, a whole gestation period with nine months when attachment happens right pre-birth and then you know the mm-hmm. whole birthing process creates another layer and all these things are true but it's just how quickly attachment happens sometimes just like boggles your mind it's like he's been with us a couple months and it feels like he's been with us forever like we can mm-hmm. now we can't imagine our lives without him kind of thing Mm, Uh, yeah so that's the piece of it like i think sometimes you know people talk about you know you know uh, blood and things like that but honestly our hearts are a lot bigger than that Mm -hmm. okay well jazakallah okay let me try to remember your let me try to remember your alias name um uh i don't remember it okay tig tigringe tigristi tigringe is a language (laughs) what's wrong with me you got the languages it's part of Thank you so much for joining us. It was it was a pleasure, to be honest. We, we really, really enjoyed it. No, thank you for having me. This is fun.